0: A listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Now our host Dr Keith Souter is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics, My name is Sasha Tannock. I'm a journalist, and Keith, today we're looking at COP26, the global climate change conference that wrapped up last week. Now tell me, what are we taking out of this conference?
1: Well, this is um, an annual gathering, so COP means Conference of the Parties, so it's the parties to a treaty to save the planet via preventing climate change, so COP means Conference of the Parties. So there's pretty well all the countries in the world, and they came together in Glasgow this time. It rotates around, and basically it's looking at how much progress we've made since the Paris rounds of negotiations uh, five years ago. So cast your mind all the way back to 1992. This is where the process began. So if you're like little little Greta Thunberg, you'll be saying, you're not really making much progress (laughs) in 30 years, Guy, just more blah, blah, blah. So 30 years ago, we begin this process of just trying to address climate change really making very little progress and then at the paris cop conference of the parties they hit on the idea that instead of trying to come up with some sort of umbrella international target that they would end up with all the countries being asked how would you address this issue of 1.5 degrees warming in your own way and so we got away from some sort of big international plan and instead we got down to individual national targets so the purpose of the glasgow conference was just to review how much progress is being made with the, the the conference of the parties coming together to report on what's going on so 1.5 is the average temperature there's a whole science argument about what will happen when the world goes up to 1.5 and the british chair of the conference was talking about we're still trying to keep alive 1.5 others are saying look i think we're destined to go up to 2.7, which is going to make life very difficult indeed for some areas. In fact, as we meet today, there's a media report about the island of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean as being a concrete example of climate change. They've not had any rain for years. So desertification is taking over, and that means that people can't grow any food. And so this is as the temperature increases, so you get irregularity in the weather patterns. So what did we achieve at Glasgow? I think very little. Um, But then Greta Thunberg would say it's bound to be more blah, blah, blah.
0: (laughs) So what was actually agreed to at Glasgow? Because there was a very last-minute change of wording that was a topic of discussion. That's the coal one, (laughs) yeah.
1: So I think what you could do, if you're trying to be optimistic, you'd say that the Glasgow Climate Pact, which is the jargon which they've used, one of the issues that it does address is the whole issue of coal. The, the, you're right. There's a, this talking about words, um, not phasing it out, but in fact uh, phasing it down. I think the bottom line is that the writing is on the wall for the coal industry. We're not sure when it'll be wound up. If you look at Britain itself, the British got us into this mess back in 1750 when they invented industrialization. And when Mrs. Thatcher became Prime Minister, Mrs. Thatcher, by the way, was a scientist. She accepted all the climate change uh, reasoning, etc. So she wasn't a problem in that respect. But she didn't like the coal mine unions. So when she came to power in 1979, she took on the trade unions with a view to breaking their power, and that meant taking Britain off coal. And 40 years later, Britain is now largely off coal. So it's taken 40 years for Britain to make the transition. So the countries like Russia. India, China, the United States, all very heavily reliant on coal. Australia is reliant mainly because we're the largest single coal exporter, but we also do use a lot of our own domestic coal. So yeah, it's a real problem there that coal is important. You can't abolish it overnight. because it's so you, reliant on it. It was so reliant. And if you look at the crisis in China at the moment, the factories are working reduced hours. And there's a reduced amount of power for people's homes. And winter is coming into North China. I've been in North China during the winter. They take their winters very seriously. But they're having to ration the availability of coal. So really, I think Glasgow is an example about politics is the art of the possible. So for a lot of the politicians there, they know there's a problem with climate change. But We've moved beyond this issue about people denying climate change. We now accept, yep, there is a problem. The question is now, how do you actually uh, try to address it? Glasgow has as one of its achievements, the very clear warning to the coal industry, eventually you're going to be phased out or phased down, but it's going to take quite a few years. That's, that's the practicality of it. Uh, we're also looking at finance. Uh, one of the other issues at Glasgow was just trying to find ways of um, putting more finance, particularly to assist developing countries who are being hit with climate change problems. Obviously, the issue of drought, or they could be having floods, uh, building seawalls around Bangladesh, for example. Bangladesh is a very low-lying country, and so building some seawalls just to protect them against the rising sea levels. So the problem is, though, the money isn't there. Because there was a commitment, wasn't
0: there, of $100 billion, but have the developed nations met that commitment to the developing nations? No, not at all, Sasha. No,
1: No. you're right. That was the commitment. Hasn't been honoured. The developed countries are not putting in nearly as much of the amount of money as they said they would do. And it's interesting that the United States at the conference, uh, John Kerry, uh, the um, person responsible for the policies now within the US government, John Kerry said, look, the amount of money which is involved to try to sort out climate change is so big, it's beyond the power of any government. So it means the business sector is going to have to come in and help as well so there're all sorts of talks about how we can get the business sector involved because we we've, we've now left the issue for so long and here I'm beginning to sound again like Greta Thunberg my own organisation the club of rome published a report in 1972 warning about this you then get 20 years later the 1992 basic treaty on climate change so we've we've had years of warnings and now we've got politicians saying the issue is too big for us to try to solve. We've now got to look at bringing in partners from the business sector as a way of trying to solve the problems.
0: And the clock's ticking in terms of uh, cutting those carbon emissions fast enough to hit that 1.5 degree target. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Suter. I'm Sasha Tannock, and Keith, today we're talking about COP26. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson talked about needing a James Bond-type victory to save the planet. So did we, in fact, save the Earth uh, at Glasgow?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. The the great thing about Boris Johnson, who happens to be our local MP at Uxbridge, is that he's a really flamboyant character. He's he's great to have around as, you know, the sort of person who's a great... joy to his friends and a great embarrassment to his relatives so this this sort of comment about James Bond really not at all helpful but he's a person who you know it shows how he endears himself to the British public and so yes you do need to have a sort of a miracle like that a James Bond figure we don't have it and we didn't create that in Glasgow because the governments know that all politics is local so if you take the U.S position for example the problem for uh, Mr Kerry was that one of the key players in Congress at the moment is a senator, Joe Manchin, from West Virginia, who is a Democrat, right? So nominally, he's on the side of Joe Biden, but he's got immense coal interests, and v- West Virginia is a major coal producer. So he's not going to accept any language which is uh, uh, antagonistic towards the coal industry. So from a political point of view, leaving aside James Bond uh, wishes, one, one, is the whole problem of your domestic lobby groups, the influence of lobby groups, the coal industry, et cetera. Yes, you have youngsters out on the street, the Greta Thunbergs, et cetera, really changing how we perceive the issue. But at the end of the day, you've got a lot of financial interests who are saying coal is still very important. And ordinary householders who know that coal is important. And we're talking about electronic vehicles, for example. Great move but you power them through electricity. Where do you get electricity? One of the ways is through the burning of coal. So you've got that domestic issue. I think also there's a problem that politicians know what has to be done, but they don't know how they're going to get reelected after they've done it. In other words, that we're looking at a, a crisis which is so big that will require a reshaping of the economic system, and we're not up to that. It's a very big challenge. And I I don't think um, that there is any clear alternative model. We're getting a lot of people, my colleague uh, in the Club of Rome, come up with all sorts of of ideas. Hazel Henderson, who I've followed now for decades, one of my Club of Rome colleagues, she talks about the solar economy. She's been doing that for almost half a century. A voice in the wilderness. Now, of course, we've got more people paying attention to the use of solar power and wind power, et cetera. But as HG, was it HG Wells used to say, uh, everything is a, a race between education and disaster. So we, we know what's got to be done. But the problem is that will we be able to do it in time to be able to avert a disaster? And that, that is the big mission. I've got to say at the moment, if you are a pessimist like little Greta Thunberg, I think you've probably got some arguments on your side
0: because of course none of the agreements were or are legally binding uh, is that correct, that's correct so yeah. <laughs> time will tell uh how each country actually meets any of those targets that they've agreed to
1: and yeah exactly it so it's an international treaty which needs to be ratified domestically according to your own domestic provisions before it becomes binding on you as a government you can't bind the entire international community i think eventually you will get some parts of international law becoming, this is more of a technical issue, becoming customary international law, which means that it doesn't matter whether or not you've got it in your own legal system, tough. This is now basically international law which is binding on you, such as the regulation of the elimination of piracy. Um, That's an old principle that goes back well over 2,000 years. Uh, But generally, this this branch of international law, environmental law, is not nearly in that category. And so uh, you're quite right uh, that none of this, what was agreed to in Glasgow, is binding. It depends a lot on domestic lobby groups, the environmental activists who keep saying to, in our case, the Australian government, this is what you've agreed to do. You've got to work on it. The problem is, as soon as uh, the conference was over, the Australian government was already distancing itself from some (laughs) of the harsher measures being foreshadowed in the Glasgow Declaration.
0: Yes, yes. So... Uh, what next for for COP twenty seven? I believe uh, it's headed to Egypt. It,
1: uh, yes, next year we we meet in Egypt. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if people can use the intermediate year in which to get fresh commitments. Remember, every government is having to make a national commitment to what should be done, and uh, whether the Australian government will come back with a, a fresh national commitment which uh, promises to emit less carbon and methane. Methane was also one of the gases. It's now one of the achievements of Glasgow. They've got that on the agenda. Bit by bit, you know, you can see progress being made. Progress is made in international terms, in terms of increments. In other words, small steps. But the problem is, are the steps being made at a fast enough pace? That's the issue. Now, remember, we've moved away. This is a sign of progress from the climate deniers you've still got the Donald Trumps, but generally speaking, you don't get too many people denying there's a problem with climate change. Now it turns on a question of practicality. And how do you do that without costing jobs? And there are a number of proposals at Australian level or state level even for creating new jobs, and that'll require money. And, of course, we're busy spending all this money on COVID arrangements, et cetera. So I've noticed that... uh, President Biden is having difficulty getting some of his legislation through Congress because even some members of his own party disagree with the government getting heavier and heavily into deficit. It's a very difficult So many issue.
0: barriers to achieve uh, what each nation would like to by Egypt even. So not really a 007 victory potentially in the <laughs> next 12 months, but it'll be interesting to see uh, how much progress is made when everyone gets together again. Yep. Listener.